Book Two, Chapter One, Part One, of Lord of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Cartboulet, Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson, Book Two, Chapter One, Part One. Oliver Brand was seated at his desk on the evening of the next day reading the leading article of the new people evening edition we have had time he read to recover ourselves a little from the intoxication of last night before embarking on prophecy it will be as well to recall the facts up to yesterday evening our anxiety with regard to the eastern crisis continued and when twenty-one o'clock struck there were not more than forty persons in london the English delegates, that is to say, who knew positively that the danger was over. Between that moment and half an hour later, the government took a few discreet steps. A select number of persons were informed. The police were called out, with half a dozen regiments, to preserve order. Paul's house was cleared. The railroad companies were warned. And at the half-hour precisely, the announcement was made by means of the electric placards in every quarter of london as well as in all large provincial towns we have not space now to adequately describe the admirable manner in which the public authorities did their duty it is enough to say that not more than seventy fatalities took place in the whole of london nor is it our business to criticize the action of the government in choosing this mood of making the announcement by twenty-two o'clock paul's house was filled in every corner the old choir was reserved for members of parliament and public officials the quarter-dome galleries were filled with ladies and to the rest of the floor the public was freely admitted the volor police also inform us now that for about the distance of one mile in every direction round this centre every thoroughfare was blocked with pedestrians and two hours later as we all know practically all the main streets of the whole of london were in the same condition it was an excellent choice by which mr oliver brand was selected as the first speaker his arm was still in bandages and the appeal of his figure as well as his passionate words struck the first explicit note of the evening a report of his words will be found in another column in their turns the prime minister mr snowford the first minister of the admiralty the secretary for eastern affairs and lord pemberton all spoke a few words corroborating the extraordinary news at a quarter before twenty-three the noise of cheering outside announced the arrival of the american delegates from paris and one by one these ascended the platform by the south gates of the old choir each spoke in turn it is impossible to appreciate words spoken at such a moment as this but perhaps it is not invidious to name mr markham as the orator who above all others appealed to those who were privileged to hear him it was he too who told us explicitly what others had merely mentioned to the effect that the success of the american efforts was entirely due to mr julian felsenberg as yet mr felsenberg has not arrived but in answer to a roar of inquiry 
Mr. Markham announced that this gentleman would be amongst them in a few minutes. He then proceeded to describe to us, so far as was possible in a few sentences, the methods by which Mr. Felsenberg had accomplished what is probably the most astonishing task known to history. It seems from his words that Mr. Felsenberg, whose biography, so far as it is known, we give in another column, is probably the greatest orator that the world has ever known. We use these words deliberately. All languages seem the same to him. He delivered speeches during the eight months through which the Eastern Convention lasted in no less than fifteen tongues. Of his manner in speaking, we shall have a few remarks to make presently. He showed also, Mr. Markham told us, the most astonishing knowledge, not only of human nature, but of every trait under which that divine thing manifests itself. He appeared acquainted with the history, the prejudices, the fears, the hopes, the expectations of all the innumerable sects and castes of the East to whom it was his business to speak. In fact, as Mr. Markham said, he is probably the first perfect product of that new cosmopolitan creation to which the world has labored throughout its history. In no less than nine places, Damascus, Irkutsk, Constantinople, Calcutta, Benares, Nankin, among them, he was hailed as Messiah by a Mohammedan mob. Finally, in America, where this extraordinary figure has arisen, all speak well of him. He has been guilty of none of those crimes. There is not one that convicts him of sin. Those crimes of the yellow press, of corruption, of commercial or political bullying, which have so stained the past of all those old politicians who made the sister continent what she has become. Mr. Felsenberg has not even formed a party. He, and not his underlings, have conquered. Those who are present in Paul's house on this occasion will understand us when we say that the effect of those words was indescribable. When Mr. Markham sat down, there was a silence. Then, in order to quiet the rising excitement, the organist struck the first chords of the masonic hymn. The words were taken up, and presently not only the whole interior of the building rang with it, but outside, too, the people responded, and the city of London for a few moments became indeed a temple of the Lord. Now indeed we come to the most difficult part of our task— and it is better to confess at once that anything resembling journalistic descriptiveness must be resolutely laid aside. The greatest things are best told in the simplest words. Towards the close of the fourth verse, a figure in a plain dark suit was observed ascending the steps of the platform. For a moment this attracted no attention, but when it was seen that a sudden movement had broken out among the delegates, the singing began to falter, and it ceased altogether as the figure, after a slight inclination to right and left, passed up the further steps that led to the rostrum. Then occurred a curious incident. The organist aloft at first did not seem to understand, and continued playing, but a sound broke out from the crowd, resembling a kind of groan, and instantly he ceased but no cheering followed. 
Instead, a profound silence dominated in an instant the huge throng. This, by some strange magnetism, communicated itself to those without the building, and when Mr. Felsenberg uttered his first words, it was in a stillness that was like a living thing. We leave the explanation of this phenomenon to the expert in psychology. Of his actual words we have nothing to say. So far as we are aware, no reporter made notes at the moment. But the speech, delivered in Esperanto, was a very simple one, and very short. It consisted of a brief announcement of the great fact of universal brotherhood, a congratulation to all who were yet alive to witness this consummation of history, and, at the end, an ascription of praise to that spirit of the world whose incarnation was now accomplished. So much we can say, but we can say nothing as to the impression of the personality who stood there. In appearance the man seemed to be about thirty-three years of age, clean-shaven, upright, with white hair and dark eyes and brows. He stood motionless, with his hands on the rail. He made but one gesture that drew a kind of sob from the crowd. He spoke these words slowly, distinctly, and in a clear voice. Then he stood waiting. There was no response but a sigh which sounded in the ears of at least one who heard it, as if the whole world drew breath for the first time. And then that strange heart-shaking silence fell again. Many were weeping silently, the lips of thousands moved without a sound, and all faces were turned to that simple figure, as if the hope of every soul were centered there. So, if we may believe it, the eyes of many centuries ago were turned on one known now to history as Jesus of Nazareth. Mr. Felsenberg stood so a moment longer, then he turned down the steps, passed across the platform, and disappeared. Of what took place outside, we have received the following account from an eyewitness. The white volor, so well known now to all who were in London that night, had remained stationary, outside the little south door of the old choir ale, poised about twenty feet above the ground. Gradually it became known to the crowd, in those few minutes, who it was who had arrived in it, and upon Mr. Felsenberg's reappearance that same strange groan sounded through the whole length of Paul's churchyard, followed by the same silence. The volor descended, the master stepped on board, and once more the vessel rose to a height of twenty feet. It was thought at first that some speech would be made, but none was necessary, and after a moment's pause, the volor began that wonderful parade which London will never forget. Four times during the night, Mr. Felsenberg went round the enormous metropolis, speaking no word, and everywhere the groan preceded and followed him, while silence accompanied his actual passage. Two hours after sunrise, the white ship rose over Hampstead, and disappeared towards the north, and since then he, whom we call, in truth, the saviour of the world, has not been seen. And now what remains to be said? Comment is useless. It is enough to say in one short sentence that the new era has begun, to which prophets and kings and the suffering, the dying, all who labor and are heavy laden, have aspired in vain. 
not only has intercontinental rivalry ceased to exist, but the strife of home dissensions has ceased also. Of him who has been the herald of its inauguration, we have nothing more to say. Time alone can show what is yet left for him to do. But what has been done is as follows. The eastern peril has been forever dissipated. It is understood now, by fanatic barbarians, as well as by civilized nations, that the reign of war is ended. Not peace but a sword, said Christ, and bitterly true have those words proved to be. Not a sword but peace is the retort articulate at last from those who have renounced Christ's claim or have never accepted them. The principle of love and union, learned however falteringly in the West during the last century, has been taken up in the East as well. There shall be no more an appeal to arms, but to justice, no longer a crying after a God who hides himself, but to man who has learned his own divinity. The supernatural is dead. Rather, we know now that it never yet has been alive. What remains is to work out this new lesson, to bring every action, word and thought, to the bar of love and justice. And this will be, no doubt, the task of years. Every code must be reversed, every barrier thrown down. Party must unite with party, country with country, and continent with continent. There is no longer the fear of fear, the dread of the hereafter, or the paralysis of strife. Man has groaned long enough in the travails of birth. His blood has been poured out like water through his own foolishness, but at length he understands himself and is at peace. Let it be seen at least that England is not behind the nations in this work of reformation. Let no national isolation, pride of race, or drunkenness of wealth hold her hands back from this enormous work. The responsibility is incalculable, but the victory is certain. Let us go softly, humbled by the knowledge of our crimes in the past, confident in the hope of our achievements in the future, towards that reward which is inside at last, the reward hidden so long by the selfishness of man, the darkness of religion, and the strife of tongues, the reward promised by one who knew not what he said, and denied what he asserted. Blessed are the meek, the peacemakers, the merciful, for they shall inherit the earth, be named the children of God, and find mercy. Oliver, white to the lips, with his wife kneeling now beside him, turned the page and read one more short paragraph, marked as being the latest news. It is understood that the government is in communication with Mr. Felsenberg. End of Book 2, Chapter 1, Part 1